there's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing. I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. Darlene, I love you. But the whole show was previously on the Mike Wise Show. It's a best of. And it used to be called the Wise Ass Show. That's when Twitter went crazy and said, you can't advertise with us using the word ass. <laughs> but they'll put Cardi B up pretty much naked. All right. Anyway, I want you to hear my first guest, my first guest ever and my first ever podcast, Jamal Crawford, discusses whether his Hall of Fame credentials are negatively affected by the number of teams he has been on. He then proceeds to name all 19 of his NBA coaches in order and I mean, it's more impressive than any crossover. Uh, look, listen, I enjoy this thing more than you know, and and I hope you will too. What are you on the nineteenth coach in your nineteenth season? Yes, I am. <laughs> and who knows? Who knows how it ends up or shakes out? Because I don't know how they they pick the criteria or anything. Mm. And obviously, I wouldn't be the obvious choice. But when you look at full body of work. When it's all said and done, like you said, there'd be, you know, Hall of Fame guys I looked up to uh, whose uh, full body of work, I'm not sure, um, would be the same. You know, so I, I, who knows how it plays out. But, yeah, I think, you know, even getting compliments like that from, like I said, people you, like you, you've seen everybody work with people and work with everybody. And to get those kind of compliments, that means everything. You can't name those coaches, can you? Um, uh, of course I could. Can, can you do it just for me? I, I just I, like to me. I, I could not. I couldn't remember my high two high school coaches that I played for, and and I didn't play at a very high level. You played in the NBA for nineteen seasons. You're right. Okay, You're let right. me. Hear, okay, let me hear. All right, Tim Floyd. Okay. Bill, are you are you jotting this down? Yes, I am. I'm. I'm. I'm well, I'm, I'm. Here's what I'm doing. I'm. You, the story I did in the Undefeated actually had Lisa Salter's interview with you, and I actually wrote every you know I actually quoted the uh, video, and so I so I got the list right here. You can't you cannot stump me on this one, my friend. Okay, All right. Tim Floyd, <laughs> Bill Cartwright, mm-hmm. Bill Berry, Pete Myers, Scott Skiles. Uh, where did I go after that? New York. So then it was uh, Lenny Wilkins, Herb Williams, Isaiah Thomas. Larry Brown, Mike D'Antoni. Then when I go after that, Golden State. So then it was uh, Don Nelson. And after that, it was Larry Drew, Mike Woodson. After that, it was Caleb Canales, Nate McMillan. <laughs> after that, it was uh, Benny Del Negro. It was Doc Rivers. And then it was uh, Tom Thibodeau. And it is Igor, Coach Igor. Oh man, that's impressive. That's impressive. Do you? Uh, I mean, impressive or sad? How would you look at it? A little bit of both. Mm. A little bit of both. I mean, because you you think of dang what what could have been in some ways, but you also are like proud because you withstood all that. You see guys leave one system and go to another; they look totally different. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, and then you see guys in different situations and they're you know they're, they're perform well in a certain situation they don't perform well in a certain situation whatever it might be and that's just kind of that and they go somewhere else they look completely different but to kind of carve out my niche and kind of pretty much be the same everywhere after all these years and all that and i think that's pretty impressive speaking of coaches pj carlissimo never coached jamal crawford but he did have a memorable appearance where he shared some insight on the 1992 dream team that's later in the Best Of show. First, he'll talk about the one player he'll always be linked to, for better or worse, Latrell Sprewell. Does it bother you that this is sort of a, you know, your obituary's written tomorrow and that gets in the second graph at the le- at the, at the worst, probably maybe in the first graph yep. of the New York Times obituary, that, that it becomes such a big thing that your a player choked you for 10 to 15 seconds after practice, he lost it. He basically lost 68 games, a lot of money. 
Luttrell, for whatever people say about him, he's had problems on and off the court since. You've moved on. It just it bothers me knowing you that this is sort of such a big thing still. Well, it, because it was unprecedented. I mean, it just I don't think anything really like that had ever happened. It was obviously reported, you know, uh, it was a, an enormous story, and that, that's never going to change. So, um, yeah, a, a lot of people, um, again, a lot of non-basketball people, that's pretty much the only way they know me. If they hear the name, they go, yeah, isn't that the guy? Uh, yeah, I am the guy, So, and that's never going to change. So um, I, I can't can't do anything about it. The, you know, the guys that were on our team, the guys that were at the practice that day, you know, the guys that were with us, they understand you know, what happened, how it happened. Um, I never really understood it, to be honest with you. I mean, Latrell and I have spoken not not about that. You know, we, we've been in situations before. I've covered games um, that he played in, and it's, you know, it's not going to change. And exactly what sure. you said is not going to change. That's always going to be first first paragraph uh, or at worst second paragraph. If, uh, don't give me an obituary yet, but if you, if you talk about me, um, <laughs> it's, it's going to be there for sure. Yeah, but did, real quick, did did he did he ever make amends in any way? Did he no, ever say? Did you no, ever talk we, about we never it? we never talked about that. To be honest with you, uh, you know, it was just you know good to see you, or good luck tonight, sure. or you know how you doing, something like that. It was sure. never it was never more than a an, ex, an exchange, and frankly, cordial exchanges. Uh, no. But but no, never 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 any discussion uh, of the incident. Spree would have never made an Indiana practice in Bloomington under coach Bob Knight, but Isaiah Thomas did. He came on the show and I gave us some personal anecdotes I'd never heard of, including how Bob Knight almost got in a fight with his brothers doing his recruiting visit to, to the West side of Chicago. And then Jeff Hornacek's dad beat his ass. No, literally spanked him while he was a Catholic school principal in Chicago. And Isaiah was a student of his. True story. We always have have reached out and stayed in touch. I mean, okay, I'm, you know the 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 Indiana connection and and I think with all of us with all with all former coaches, whether they be high school or college coaches, I know myself. I do my high school coach, my college coach, my NBA coaches. Um, I am always uh, in touch with them and and forever grateful for what they've done for me as a person and a player. And do you um, was he as hard on you as he was on some other players? I, I I think coach did not discriminate with his harshness or his hardness. I mean, <laughs> every every everybody got got a, got a equal distribution of you know toughness from him. I mean, I I, I can't say that you know he took it easy on anybody. <laughs> I look uh, I look back on it, and obviously you have a special relationship with him. It, it was hard to watch the documentary. Um, it was hard to watch, uh, one, the people who defended him against some things that, that were, you know, they weren't sure. But two, uh, you know, it, it just felt like if you had done that documentary 30 years ago, people would say, eh, yeah, he's a tough SOB, but but damn it, that's that's what coaching in the Big Ten was then, and that's who Bob Knight is. Nowadays, you know, he's like up, he's up on child abuse charges. Is this just a, is this just a different era, or is Bobby Knight a bully through and through, and he just happens to be a great coach? Well, the the, the one thing about uh, looking back uh, and doing, you know, timepieces, uh, very rarely do. Uh, you include or talk about the the context of the time and what that time period was about, and you know the way the way the way a lot of all parents raised us back then, uh, and I'm talking about my mom and my dad. You know the the way we were raised back then. Nowadays, if you said the things to your kid or did the thing to your kid, I mean, literally, you you go to jail now. <laughs> you know, yeah. Um, and and coaching and and teaching was was the same. Um, I grew up. Um, you know, I I went to Catholic school, and some of the things that the priests and the nuns, uh, from a discipline disciplinary standpoint, you know, in terms of using the paddle and the ruler, and you know, 
grabbing you by your ear, you know, yank, you know, it's like those stuff, you know, it's, it's not allowed today. And that's the same way we're coaching. Hey, Mr. Hornacek, who was the Dean of Students at my school, Jeff Hornacek's dad, Hmm. um, I remember in, in detention, you could either choose to either get the paddle or you could choose to, to write, you know, three chapters in a history book. And a lot of times you just chose the paddle, and Mr. Hornacek was the dispenser of the paddle. <laughs> so, Je- so Jeff Hornacek's dad beat your ass. Absolutely. He was my freshman coach also. <laughs> That's incredible. Uh, this, was this at St. Joe's? Yeah, this is at St. Joe's. Oh man! So he, so he and uh, P- Joe Pingator were were in concert. Yeah, and, and but yeah. I mean that those those were the times back then, and I think sure. I think what happened with with Coach Knight, he got he got caught right in the right at the end where where times were changing and yeah. the things that you know people talked about in terms of being great, you know, strong disciplinarians and you know, the things that were allowed in coaching, you know, it, it, it changed and it changed, you know, overnight. And in my opinion, he was a victim of that change and not being able to adjust and change with the time. One of the things I'm proud of in this show is bringing on some very independent minded people. Isaiah's one of them. And of course, Lakers owner, Jeannie Buss, she gave us one of the best hours we've had Considering the glorious past the Lakers have enjoyed, why not roll with what got you there? And that's my thought on Jeannie Buss, the daughter of Dr. Jerry. And shoot, she knows all the dirty laundry in Tinseltown, including why Shaq and Riles never united in Los Angeles, but moved east and won the Miami Heat their first championship. It had nothing to do with, with you know, Shaq's age. It had to do with the fact that he had been grant his contract had been grandfathered through the previous collective bargaining agreement. So the amount of money that he could get paid was not something that, you know, Dr. Buss felt he wanted to pay. And so it was really just about um, a, a contract. And it was clear that that there wasn't going to be an agreement and it was time to make a trade. And so go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I cut you off. No, I mean, in, in other words, if, if he had, you know, come down from the, the, his asking price, um, you know, he, you know, there wouldn't have been a trade. It was really just about, it was about finances. It wasn't about anything other than that. And, you know, Shaq went on to win another championship. So you, you can't say it was about his age or his ability because, you know, he, he still had championship years in him. Yeah. And not only that, I, I, um, when, when Pat Riley went out there and sort of entered, entertained the idea of maybe coming back to coach again, were you guys serious about bringing him back as the Lakers coach? Um, right before that trade was made? Um, you know, it, it, you know, I wasn't part of the conversation then. That was a, yeah. a meeting that Dr. Buss had. And so, uh, you know, I think that, you know, Pat Riley, you know, when he's a free agent, because he's not a free agent right now, like, so mm-hmm. I can't, I, I really don't want to talk about any other. No, I mean, Pat, uh, Pat, Roy, no, Pat, or... yeah, Pat Riley told me the whole story where he just, okay, they, there you, they, go. you guys drank, uh, they drank a bunch of wine that night and it was sort of rumored and, and, uh, but the one thing he was, he, the one thing that he was sort of predicating on his decision, if he ever would go there was, was Shaq and Kobe being together. And once he knew that Shaq was out, he, he basically went back to Miami and formulated a plan so he could get Shaq, <laughs> which I He's think- He's a is, smart man. He is yeah, a smart man. I'll give him that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, one of the great the stories, I remember we were, we, everybody had their own Riley stories. And I'm sure you you were as privy to them as all of them. But you, I remember you sat up with a bunch of the writers one night and you looked at us and you go, you know, you know, you guys don't get it, do you? And I go, what do you mean, Jeannie? And, she, and you said- it's not women that all want Pat Riley. It's that men want to be him. He goes, he's a, he, you, you said he's a dude magnet. 
You call him a dude magnet. I I love that term. Like, what is it about that guy? Like, everybody want you know. I you're right. I I love his hair. I mean, uh, I love I love to have this idea of just telling somebody that makes twenty thousand times as much as me. You know, like just go run some lines. Get away from me. And and but but what is it? What is it about Pat Riley? What was there a was there a moment where you were sort of taken in yourself by going, God, this guy is just commanding. Yeah, I mean, we watched we watched him go from being, you know, the you know co-host on our our broadcast with Chick Hearn to an assistant coach, and then becoming the head coach of the Lakers, and you know him taking on that authoritative role and a leader, and understanding what that meant, um, you know, to lead a group of people, and you know uh, the someone being in the right place at the right time and the right person, it was, it was like, um, you know, it was meant to be, it was all part of Pat Riley's journey to become who he was. And we watched it happen and there was no better person at leading, you know, the premier franchise at the time than Pat Riley and, you know, how lucky we were that things fell into place the way that they did. I love the connective threads on this show. Pat Riley, before he was a big shot in the NBA, yes, a Kentucky Wildcat coached by Adolph Rupp. Remember, they were shocked in the 1966 NCAA championship game by an upstart team from El Paso. Coach Don Haskins led Texas Western, later to be known as UTEP, to the title playing an all-black starting five. Glory Road, they called it, on TNT. (laughs) One of his players 20 years later was Oakland's owned Antonio Davis, who would have a lengthy NBA career, become a well-known broadcaster, and give me some really good time. You, you played for Don Haskins, um, obviously yeah. because, because our society has become obsessed with race lately, that uh, mm. all this, you know, the story of him in, in Texas Western before it was UTEP yeah. back in the day when they beat Kentucky – and yeah. and shoot, I forgot Pat Riley was on that team. Um, yeah. Did he ever talk about that with you guys, or did you ask him about it, or were you were you very familiar with that story when you went there? Yeah, I, I think it came up uh, on my visit. I'm sitting there in his office, and he has that picture behind his desk, and, and I'm on the other side of the desk, and I'm looking up at the picture, and he kind of asked me what I was looking. He knew what I was looking at. What you looking at? And I was like, oh, that. That team is amazing. You guys won a championship and whatnot. Um, I mean, first first starting all black five in college basketball yeah. that won a championship yeah. in '66. Yeah, yeah, man. And the crazy part about it, he's <laughs> he was so candid about it. He was like, "Oh hell, if I would have known they were going to make such a big fuss out of it, I'd have started one white guy. It didn't make a difference <laughs> to me. We were going to win." <laughs> That's great. That's tremendous. <laughs> He was funny uh, like that, man. But, you know, I had a lot of respect for him because, you know, he, he he seemingly was one of those coaches that really wanted you to understand, you know, life other than just playing basketball. You know, he would always you know, pull you into his office and ask how you were doing or if your grades were bad. He was like, what, what's going on with you? Why are your grades bad? And blah, 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 you know. And I can remember one conversation he had with me um, even before I actually signed to go to UTEP. And by the way, uh, uh, it, it ended up being one of the best. To see. I don't know how I went from Oakland to El Paso, but it ended up working <laughs> out really well. <laughs> but he told me, he's like, listen, if you want to play this game for as long as you want to, you learn how to defend. And I, I that that stuck with me my whole career, and I can remember those days where I was cursing at him when I had to guard Tim Hardaway with my hands behind my back, full court, oh my falling God. on my butt, and <laughs> Tim oh. laughing at me and all that kind of stuff. But he he was right, you know. It really helped me when I got into the NBA, and I had to, you know, guard those guards off the pick and roll and stay in front of them till the guard got back or. Uh, understanding help side defense or talking on de- whatever the case may be, man, that, that was the pillar. That why I, that's why I played as long as I played. Here at the Mike Wise show, we often don't just bring you basketball. We try to save the world. Antonio Davis's current gig is with the players association. 
He's working with players as they transition from pro basketball to civilian life. Antonio was always a stalwart in the Players Association, and that sense of duty and responsibility is shared by current player Garrett Temple. He was my guest on Martin Luther King Day, and you're not going to believe the family ties he has. I can't think of a more socially conscious person who's really joined what I would call renaissance of social conscience among athletes than yourself. Um, could you... <laughs> I know, I know it's one of those things you were, you were almost in some ways born into. Um, let, tell people about your background. You're from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and your father, Collis, was the first uh, player of color, African-American, to integrate LSU's basketball team in, I believe, the early 70s. Is this all true? Yeah, that's true. Born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Um, and it actually goes back further to my father, my grandfather. My- uh, my dad's dad, my paternal grandfather, my paternal grandfather went to Southern University HBCU in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and um, he tried to go to LSU to get his master's degree. And this is in the 1950s, you know. So for you know, for a black man uh, to get a master's degree, it was big. And honestly, my my dad's mother went to Tuskegee and was taught by George Washington Carver at Tuskegee in biology. So, wow, that's um, amazing. Yeah, so education has been big. So my grandfather tried to go to LSU, was turned down because he was black. Thurgood Marshall had a uh, class action suit against the public colleges uh, in the South, and LSU did not want to be a part of that. So they 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 offered my grandfather money to go to any other school any other school he wanted to to get his master's. So he decided to go to Michigan State, and uh, LSU and the state paid for that for him to go to Michigan State, and um, and then my you know, fast forward 15 years later, the governor of Louisiana is in my my dad's house um, asking his parents, my grandfather, who was turned down to go to LSU for his master's, asking him to allow his son to integrate the school at LSU. And this is after, um, you know, my dad's senior year, his first year going to school with, with white people, uh, mm. you know, winning a state championship. Just It's exactly like Remember the Titans. Winning the state championship in football. Um, Britney Spears' his father was the quarterback. My dad was the star receiver. And Britney, Spear, Britney Spears' Britney. father was the quarterback <laughs> of your father's high school team. Yeah, that, that, so he was the star from the you know the the big white school in right. the Kenwood area. My dad, my dad was the star of the big black, black school. They integrated their senior year, and uh, they didn't. You know, obviously it was tension, just like on the movie. Remember the Titans, and. Um, they eventually came together, uh, went undefeated, won a state championship, and they're still friends to this day, uh, Jamie Spears. So my dad, when he watched the movie, Remember the Titans, he was like, this is exactly my life. Um, and wow. obviously going went to LSU and, um, like you said, integrated the program, was the one of two athletes, black athletes on campus, basically his whole time on campus. There was a track guy that, um, that was there a year before him. So he was there, you know, used to debate David Duke. Yes. Talk, you know, him and, yeah, yeah, and all the, of that yeah. and, Kyle, and LSU. People forget, uh, well, one of the great moments I had with you in Washington, you probably don't remember, is uh, um, I, I sort of read up on you and I said, is this stuff true? And he goes, yeah, I know at least 10 to 15 stories. Call him and I'll be able to corroborate them. And so sure enough, <laughs> I call you. I call your father up and he's so plain spoken. And he says, you know, what do you want to know? I, I committed to LSU in 69 with Bobby Kennedy and Martin Luther King Jr. assassinated, sociological, the world was a different place. Let's just say I had some folk who weren't appreciative of me being an LSU man. And then he tells me the story of arguing with David Duke in the quad. Could you, uh, yeah. I'm sure he shared that with you many times. Can you share that with us? I mean, yeah, it, it's exactly what it is. There's a place at LSU called Free Speech Alley. And, you know, there, it's a place where people go and to debate certain topics. And obviously, um, David Duke in his younger days is probably even more, uh, I, I guess, just the energetic um, or passionate about what he believes than he is now. And, um, you know, being a former now, he was, you know, the Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan. You can imagine what his thoughts on um, integration was, what his thoughts on having a black man on campus. Uh, you know, playing basketball and, you know, being not necessarily treated like athletes are today, but, you know, people showing some love to them. So they definitely had a lot of debates and, 
you know, my father coming from the background he came from was very well read. Um, my his 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 dad was a principal. His grandmother, his mother, my grandmother was an English teacher, so he was he was not afraid to speak his mind and uh, and speak eloquently about whatever he believed in. So. Yeah, that's that's something that definitely happened, and uh, it's actually funny when you think about it to me. Can't thank you guys enough for the 50 million downloads. As you know, my background is in print journalism. Some amazing colleagues over the years, Rick Buecher, Howard Beck, and Mark Stein, to name a few. But Harvey Aridon, he's my hero, my mentor, my rabbi, a straight gangster journalist. He's also the principal player in one of the funniest moments in New York Knicks history. Remember Michael Ray Richardson? And the ship be sinking? I think it was TNT did a, did a special year, some years ago on what it was called, Whatever Happened to Michael Ray? And it was about Michael Ray Richardson, who was one of the players from that era in the Knicks. He was a mercurial, wildly talented guard, but a kid who was living his life out of control and wound up getting banned by David Stern under the drug plan um, and wound up finishing his career or playing much of his career in Europe. Um, the ship be sinking. The ship be sinking. Although, you know, just not just off on a tangent a little bit, I was part of that quote in the Knicks locker room. The Knicks were having a bad year, and we went and talked to him and uh, a couple of us, and, you know, we said something about, you know, what's happening with this team. And he just uh, he Michael Ray always had this terrible stutter. And he said, I, I don't know, the, the ship be sinking. And I asked him, well, how low that should be go? the title of that should be a title of a book, by the way. Yeah. I mean, but whether I asked, it's the, whether asked, it's the White House, current administration, my life, I don't know. But that's a title of a book. It's a quote that's often used, you know, and it's credited to, you know, Michael Ray, the ship be sinking. But I asked the follow up question. Well, how low can it go? And Michael Ray looked at me and smiled and said, sky's the limit. <laughs> and then there's my dear nemesis, Frank Isola, known to you as Frankie Ice, Frankie Longears. Frank, I don't know what the mob calls him in, in Montclair, New Jersey. He's the self-proclaimed moral judge on whether it's cool for your buddy to come to your press conference. When that buddy is rapper Lil Wayne, expect some beef on your Twitter feed. All the people I've had on so far, Jamal Crawford, Garrett Temple, great guests and all, none of them have got into a Twitter beef with uh, Wheezy, Lil Wayne. Uh, <laughs> I, I could not believe this. And and Frank, uh, like, Frank's like as old as he is contemporary. He listens to music. If you don't know him, he's, he's a longtime writer at the New York Daily News, covered the Knicks, shoot, going back to 94, when uh, when he and I were on the beat together, I was at the New York Times. He's at the New York Daily News. The last few months, he signed with the Athletic, uh, covering the Knicks and the NBA. So all I got to say is, uh, how does someone that's covered the NBA for thirty years get into a beef with one of the top hip hop artists of all time? <laughs> well, my Twitter beef so far has been with um, the guy that played McLovin in that movie. <laughs> uh, what was that? What was that called? Super bad. I got into it with him, and now I got into it with Lil Wayne. I'm going after the big, uh, tough guys. But the Lil Wayne thing started because he was on ESPN uh, being interviewed with Odell. Well, Odell Beckham was being interviewed, and he was kind of sitting there with him as like his – he almost looked like he was his, his uh, young kid or something like that. So on Around the Horn, a show that I know that you watch every day at 5 o'clock on ESPN. Yeah, dedicated. I, we were talking about it, and all I said was, you know, how does Odell Beckham expect to be taken seriously when he's doing an interview with Little Wayne sitting next to him? Now I get it. I think Little Wayne said, how should he be taken seriously? I really wasn't saying that. I was saying that how can Odell Beckham be taken seriously when he needs to bring, you know, like a, a prop with him to an interview and start killing the, you know, killing the Giants. And Little Wayne's just sitting there nodding his head to everything that Odell Beckham said. You know, he's nodding in agreement. The funny thing was, what I loved about Little Wayne was that what he said about me was, you know, keep my name out your mouth. He goes, yeah, I know you, Frank. You're Italian guy from New York. I always think that, like, a lot of people that live, like, 150 miles outside of the New York area <laughs> all think that anybody with an Italian last name is probably somehow mob-connected. So to me, I felt like Lil Wayne was just hedging it a little bit. He didn't want to go over, but I think part of him was thinking, maybe this guy is somehow connected. So well, I do want to go back at him, but I'm going to go back at him 
I'm going to be polite, so to speak, in my comeback. <laughs> well, well, now I feel guilty because, oh my gosh, what do I do? I, you know, all of a sudden I see a, like I have my whole career, I jump on your um, coattails. I tweeted Little Wayne saying, um, he's he's mob connected. You don't want anything to do with him. And, and if you think you're bad, come come roll up in our neighborhood. I mean, he never <laughs> said, he never sent anything back. I think he thinks you're I think he thinks you're La Cosa Nostra. Well, to be fair, you know, New York could be a pretty rough area, but I'm sure Little Wayne probably he's from New Orleans. I'm sure he has uh, New Orleans in his hip pocket. So I'm going to be careful the next time I go to New Orleans. I might wear a fake mustache and uh, glasses to make sure that yep. nobody knows me. But I, yep. you know, when it was. It was fun. I was surprised that he came after me. Like I said, I do understand why he would be upset. And if I said no one should take Lil Wayne seriously, I didn't say that. Not that I care that he's mad at me. And probably in the long run, it was probably good for me that he said it. But yeah. I didn't say that Lil Wayne shouldn't be taken seriously. I said Odell Beckham shouldn't be taken seriously because he's doing an interview where he's criticizing his team, the organization, and he's bringing like a buddy along. It's, it just looked bizarre, the whole thing. And speaking of beef and journalists, there's Jason Whitlock and King James. Jason feels LeBron shouldn't be so uninterrupted. He's a hater. I'm part of the choir. We debate. When I talk about LeBron, I'm trying to be a journalist. And I'm trying to explore what he means, what he represents, how did we get here, how is he different than athletes from the past, is this a better direction is this being executed at a high level that will lead to some kind of substantive change and improvement of, in America? I think everybody else just makes the assumption whatever LeBron's doing is good. It, do, it shouldn't be analyzed. He came from such poverty, and he uh, participated in starting a school, don't question anything. And me as a journalist, Again, and, and we live in a society that has no respect for journalism, doesn't care about the tenets taught in journalism, and I'm talking about journalists or alleged journalists don't care about journalism. But I was taught, hey, if your mother says she loves you, get a second opinion. <laughs> so I That's believe true. in questioning everything. <laughs> That's what journalism is. Everybody else, the whole society as a whole, and including journalists, there are people that we elect, we decide that person can't be questioned. And I think for someone like LeBron, who is the most important athlete of his generation, of course we should question him. He has immense power. And so... This is where, you know, I get at odds with people. Oh, what's Whitlock doing? Oh, my God, he's, he's questioning LeBron. And he's trying to explore yeah. and analyze him. Oh, this is crazy. How yeah. can he say these things? And yeah, you're, ba just, you're basically the guy who shot Gandhi, but go ahead. <laughs> yes. And I'm just – LeBron's not Gandhi. He's <laughs> – to me – Hey, he you has, haven't asked him that. Yeah, he's lurched into – being a very spoiled, privileged. He does a television show, Mike, where no one ever questions him. Yeah. Everybody just applauds whatever he said. And they, oh, it's the barbershop show, the shop. I've never been in a barbershop where, where there isn't heated disagreement on, on virtually any important topic. But LeBron has a show where he sits there and everybody genuflects at anything he says. LeBron's son might make the NBA one day, and if he ever does, he'll join the likes of Stephen Curry, Clay Thompson, Tim Hardaway Jr., and Austin Rivers. Some of the sons of legends who became great players in their own right have faced some heat from competitors along the way who are jealous of their privilege. Two of my Hall of Fame guests were on opposite sides of the spectrum. First, listen to Isaiah Thomas, came from the west side of Chicago, and then your Grant Hill the son of an NFL star who was a Dallas Cowboy and a Yale graduate. Shoot, his mom was roommates with Hillary Rodham Clinton at Wellesley. I even talked to Stephen Curry about this a few years ago, where I said, you know, there's a lot of backlash against you. And I said, is it because you're you're not the, uh, and, and when I say backlash, from a lot of the urban black players in the league that thought, oh, this guy's a, you know, this guy's a player's kid. 
he didn't he didn't work for it like I did. And and, you know, and and, and he, I even asked him, I go, you think it's part of like the light skin, the other. And he goes, he goes, if I'd be silly if I didn't think some of that was about it. You know, I, I don't know what the backlash is, is the media loves uh, either the media loves me too much and they hate them for loving me or or, you know, they, there's just that feeling. And I look back on it now and I go, really? Like, like, I just don't. Grant Hill said he got some of this, too. Like where if you came from a from a decent background, it was all of a sudden you, you didn't have the street cred you needed to to be accepted. And I think that's one of the most ridiculous things in this day and age. Well, now that again, now that we are we are in a we are in an environment where we can have these kind of discussions that you and I are having, which are good. Yeah. Um, now, now we can really critique what was going on during that period of time, and even with a with with a with a with a Grant Hill or a Steph Curry, you know, from a from a from a cultural standpoint. So, the the privileged kids, when you're poor, mm. you always hate the privileged kids because <laughs> you want what they got. Right. <laughs> And and when you look at and you look at you know um, the way uh, a Steph Curry grew up, the way um, uh, a Brent Bur- a Brent Barry grew up, you know the John Bar- the, the Barry family, the the royal families of the NBA who have been around for centuries and ages, you know those those are the privileged kids. And so it, there's a lot of that, you know, like like uh, Doc Rivers, who when we both grew up in Chicago. His son, Austin Rivers, now is looked at one of the privileged kids, and I'm sure Doc is like, what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> you right. Know? And I'm sure Dale, and I'm sure Dale was, is looking at Steph like, what, what the hell are you talking about? Because we, we as first generation of wealth and income, when we come into the NBA or when we came into money, we, we were that first generation, and now the kids of, of us – are coming up, and now they're looked at as the privileged kids by the kids who weren't yep. privileged. So, and that and that cross racial lines. That doesn't. That's just not you know, uh, black, white, Hispanic. Yeah. I mean that. That's more about you know the haves and the have-nots. The backlash that a player like yourself, who came from a two-parent family, Janet and Calvin Hill both of whom I met, uh, obviously your mother was, uh, people always say, the, the roommate of Hillary Rodham Clinton at Wesley, and she has a great career as an attorney, and she's uh, and your father has been an executive, as well as, you know, like you, a rookie of the year in the NFL a long time ago. You had this, what people say, a privileged background. And I talked to Steph Curry about this and at one point, and I said, do you think that's part of the backlash toward you? And he goes, I would be, uh, it'd be stupid not to say it was. And it wasn't so much from other players anymore as it was from he just became such a media darling that I think people resented it in a way like, oh, this guy can't be all that. And and you told me a story once, I think, you know, was did I have any street cred when I dunked on Alonzo Mourning? Did I have, you know, and I, and I still remember the story of you, a guy giving you grief because he said, what, you don't even need this. You were playing in an all-star game, I think, in high school. And uh, do, can you share that story? And do you think things have changed because... There are so many former, uh, I mean, there's so many players now that had parents that were players. Yeah, I mean, I think it's changed a bit. I mean, I think, you know, I think a lot of things contribute to that. I think it's not just sports, it's society. I think, you know, having, you know, having a black president, you know, who, mm. you know, was, was, was a great father, a great husband. Uh, I think he just, you know, I think that image I think you can look at the influences of music. I mean, look at hip hop and look at, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the evolution of, of some of these artists, somebody like Jay-Z, who, you know, was a, was a, you know, was a, a drug dealer and now is a businessman, is intelligent, well-spoken, he's a brand, he's a pop star, you know, in a lot of ways. And you can see their growth and their maturity through the years. And I think that's had a, a huge impact on people's perceptions. Um, now, I mean, going back, I mean, I, you know, I can't speak for Steph Curry or Austin Rivers or Clay Thompson or the countless of Jaron Jackson, who's a young player whose dad played in the NBA. Um, but, you know, back in the day, yeah, I mean, I remember I went to five-star uh, basketball camp in, 
in the eighties. And, um, you know, we're all sort of trying to find our way and trying to get a scholarship to go play somewhere <laughs> in college basketball. And I remember there's this guy that was like, yo man, like your family's rich. Like, why are you even doing this? And like, like I got insulted, you know, like, like, yeah. okay. And then I'm gonna go out here and kick your butt on the court, which I did. <laughs> and, and so this idea that. Did he end up in the NBA? No, nah, no. You know, it's like nobody really ever. I mean, I think, I think nobody ever came at me sideways in the NBA. Okay. I mean, I didn't, nobody ever talked trash or at least. No, but that, did that player end up in the NBA? No, no, okay. not at all. Not at all. And uh, and so I don't even know where that player went in college. Mm. Um, but this idea that, you know, you, you have to sort of live or be, you know, a certain way or be brought up a certain way to have uh, a hunger, a thirst, a drive uh, to be successful or to, 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 to do well um, is foolish. You know, I mean, there's, there's I think it's more about the person, you know, it's about who they are and, and, and their character and what, they, you know, regardless of how they've come up or grown up or what have you. And, uh, and I think the beautiful thing is in the NBA is that you get a little bit of both. You, you can see that. You can see a diverse sort of mix of, of people from all over the world who grew up in different ways, but, you know, with their talent, their drive, maybe some genetics. <laughs> um, but all of that combined has, has allowed them to, you know, Kobe Bryant. I mean, Kobe Bryant grew up so-called exactly. privileged. And there was nobody in that generation as competitive as Kobe Bryant. So, you know, it, 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 you know it's, it's, it's an interesting sort of dynamic. I think we've sort of moved a little bit past that. But, you know, I'm sure Steph has had to endure some things. And you know what? It doesn't seem to really bother him. He's still nope. going out there playing, having fun, and, and being the great player that he is. Bruce Bowen, flat out one of the most honest, intelligent, and competitive guys around. But his honesty was punished when he dared to criticize Kawhi Leonard for the way things ended in San Antonio. Wasn't the Spurs who punished him. No, it was his employer at the time, the L.A. Clippers, where he was a game analyst. The team was worried Kawhi might get his feelings hurt before he decided in free agency. Bruce tells us the truth. I was really bothered by the way things ended for you with the Clippers. You had a, you had a year with them. And clearly they were upset about the Kawhi Leonard comments, um, which the, the thing that bothered me the most about it, and maybe from a big picture perspective, is all we've done our whole careers um, when athletes went into the media is we killed them for being so deferential to the players that came after them to the point of they wouldn't criticize them and they wouldn't be honest about them and authentic about them. And and along comes someone, a fresh voice like Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, Shaq has fun with athletes and almost not to a, a mean spirited part, but but a OK, this is you as a professional. I'm going to be hard on you because this is how you get better, just as a coach would get on you. You did that with Kawhi Leonard and I and, and the Clippers went, you know, bad shit, basically, for, 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 <laughs> wor for worse, um, like. <laughs> Look, looking, I, the great thing about this podcast, you can say you, you don't have to worry about it unless your kids listen. You can get away with some swear <laughs> words. But, uh, but, but, Bruce, were you all things? I mean, it's been over a year now. Do you have any thoughts about that going back? You know, one of the greatest uh, things that came out of that, Mike, and and you know me, you know how I think, uh, or, or a little bit of how I think by all the time we spent with each other. I use that as a as a great example for my kids i have an 11 year old and a 13 year old and i remember when my oldest son said "Papa, you got fired and i said yep um i said but most importantly son i want you to be able to really stand behind what you say or what you feel about something i don't want you to ever go along with the flow because someone else wants you to do something if that's not how you feel now there's been a lot of things said about this and the fact that I didn't know that this was such a big deal because the Clippers never shared with me their intentions of possibly going after Kawhi. So here it is. I have a done deal ready to go, and it's pulled off the table after this. Now, I look at that as do I want to deal with a, a organization or someone that 
that does business that way? Or, you know, how about this? Um, sometimes we don't realize how good things can be even in the midst of certain adversities. Mm-hmm. And so this adversity for me was a situation where if we are not able to say what we feel about a player, and and it wasn't derogative. I I enjoy Kawhi. I saw Kawhi at All Star and shook his hand. My boys love him, but there was no oh, there's Bruce. I'm not going to say anything to him because no. what he said about me. My thoughts are were these: anytime you go about your actions and you show other possible candidates to be bosses for you and you're not with your team competing, I think that sends a red flag. I think that sends a message that maybe that person's not all in. P.J. Carlissimo was a Spurs assistant for years and also an assistant coach for the 1992 Dream Team in Barcelona. The greatest team ever assembled featured NBA rivals who bonded as Olympic teammates. If you look back over time and think about it, this marked the very beginning of players trying to become NBA teammates because they were successful Olympic teammates. Two Barcelona buddies who were never NBA teammates did share a connection to Boston. One played there and the other grew up there. Does Larry Legend know you call him Birdie? Everybody called him Birdie. Uh, really? Yeah, really. That was, it's funny because um, <laughs> there were T-shirts made. It was, you know, it was funny to see the groups, you know, hang out together. Everybody's families were there and, you know, through at least in Barcelona, if not the other two segments. But the two guys who hung out together a lot were Birdie and Patrick. It was really funny. We, to the point where there, we had T-shirts made up. I still have it. It's like falling apart. But it was like um, Larry, they, they had a nickname for Patrick, and I'm drawing a blank. But it oh, was, it was Harry and Larry. Larry. And Harry. They called, Harry, uh, they Harry, called right? I don't know why, but Pat, uh, Patrick's nickname was Harry. So the, the T-shirts were Larry and Harry. And it was like those two were inseparable. Like if you came down to breakfast, you know, guys would be different tables every day. The coaches would be at one. Those two were always together at a table. If we, we went out to dinner, it was those two. It was kind of like they were Mutt and Jeff the whole, uh, the whole, the whole summer. And it was Larry and Harry, Patrick and uh, Larry Bird. All right. Continuing on a much lighter note, ESPN's analyst extraordinaire, Tim Legler, takes the game very seriously. Anyone who has seen him knows that but he approaches certain dates on the calendar with the same level of intensity. Tim Legler is obsessed with Halloween. Why? <laughs> I think my, you want my honest truth is because <laughs> I, had a, I had a brother that was 10 years older than me <laughs> growing up that terrified me on a daily basis. We shared <laughs> a room for a number of years, and he, he, he used to freak me out so bad. I think it just was ingrained in my mind that I liked scary stuff growing up. I was so used to it. So I think that's where it came from, man. I've always liked horror movies. I've always liked Halloween. And fortunately, you know, my, my wife, Christina, uh, is probably more obsessed even than I am. So I met the one person oh, in the world that's more obsessed than me. So now we've taken it to a completely another level. Yeah, forget it. I was going to talk to you about doing a movie, you know, called 10 Day Contract. I think we should do you and Christina should get together. And by the way, that's my wife's name. So so she's got to be awesome. Well, all you um, need to know about my wife is this year, um, Dan Lebetard has taken a liking to the fact that I love Halloween so much. So every year we do a Halloween it's basically a Halloween show. I've done a half-hour segment with yeah. before, right? So this year, they actually came out to my house. They had a film crew in my front yard, and I was dressed up like Twisty the Clown from American Horror Story, and and we had a great time in my front yard because we. That was it. It was our... terrifying. I saw yeah, that. My wife. My wife. What was it like? Riding down the driveway on a tricycle with a jigsaw mask on. So. That's all you need to know about where our minds are. Ah, that's, that's great. American Horror Story, the Leglers. Finally, Amin El-Hassan of ESPN moved back and forth between the U.S. and Sudan twice when he was younger. Smoothed out the culture shock, his father bought a VCR to bring a little of the U.S. to the family's homeland. And the rest was history. You're a huge Star Wars guy. Did that just start for you when you when you got older and you came over here when you were 14 um, after your second tour of Sudan? Or did you actually experience it um, over there? Yeah, so it started when I was a kid in New York when, you know, we were going, when we were getting ready to know that we were moving back to Sudan. Uh, mm-hmm. 
my father had the genius idea of basically getting uh, a VCR and taping everything, taping every movie we could, we could, because you know, you know, when you get to Sudan, there was a very a dearth of entertainment options. This is pre-internet and satellite right. technology was very expensive, not something we were going to have. So basically, we had state-run TV in Sudan, which was one channel, um, and it was not a very good channel. A lot of propaganda, uh, a lot of you know, boring programming. So we had this VCR mm. and we had tapes of every, everything, you know. So uh, Star Wars is one of those movies, you know. And, you know, I was, I, I, Return of the Jedi was like the first movie I saw, or first Star Wars movie I saw in the theater, but I had a copy of Star Wars that I watched religiously uh, over and over and over again. And the funny thing is, um, because, the you know, this is, again, pre-DVR, it came on and we had we weren't ready. And so I actually the tape starts in the cantina and most obviously where Han Solo is greeted to Greedo, you know, uh, you know, over the bounty or whatever. You don't even and see the so start of me, it? For me to this day, I mean, I've seen the start of it a, a bunch of times, but to this day, if it's on, when I watch the beginning of the movie, it feels like I'm watching a new movie because that stuff is so new to oh, me compared to the zillions of times I've watched everything from most obviously on. That's that is so good. That's so good. Tell me, because my kids and I have really my kids have just gotten into it. My eight year old, my four year old sons, they're just like nuts about it. Tell me if tell me if this is good or not. And you could be honest. Mm, take your turn. My you master. I would say that much like I am a practicing Muslim who's on the practice team, you are a practicing Star Wars fan. Oh, <laughs> You're a practicing yoga Yoda uh, impersonator. Okay. All right. All right. Wait. Just one more. Just one more. Just one more. Right. Just one. <clears throat> Obi Wan never told you who your father was. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. Join me, and together we can move the galaxy as father and son. Yeah, that's on the better than the, Yeah, surprisingly better than your Yoda. Uh, yeah. Got to work on on the on the terminology though. Obi Wan never told you what happened to your father. Oh God! I knew you were gonna get me on that one. He told me that you killed him. He said, no, I am your father. And then that's when Luke goes nuts and screams his now iconic, no! no, no. <laughs> I told you we buried the lead. All right, next podcast, me and you, Star Wars, for 30 minutes and then five minutes for NBA. There you go. My producer, Bruce Bernstein, who created this tour de force, will probably have something to say about that. I hope you enjoyed the stories. We do this every week. Our guests make this show and we'll keep them coming. Please remember to subscribe to the Mike Wife Show as well as all of our Pure Hoops media shows. Download, rate, review, and enjoy. All of our previous episodes are available online. Thanks for your support. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. 